This is an ABC podcast. Home, it said, is where the heart is. Where's that for you? The land on which you live? Do you feel like your life is rooted in the earth? Hi, I'm Justine Toe with you for Soul Search on RN and your ABC Listen app. So, is your human life intimately connected to and even reliant on planet Earth? It's a question worth asking. Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher, began her book The Human Condition reflecting on the launch of the first space satellite in 1957. You might think that this was an occasion for pride and awe at human mastery, but Arendt saw in such technological developments a rebellion against human existence as it has been given. So, a desire to outstrip human limitations. Well, we live in a time when billionaires have raised their gaze to space. Elon Musk wants to colonise Mars. Then there's also Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. All growth-obsessed entrepreneurs who get there's a lot of money to be made from the next space race. Sky-high commercial tourism. How to explain our space-bound ambitions? Is it a case of, well, itchy feet? Or is Arendt right? Are we frustrated with the limits of life on planet Earth? Later, Reverend Dr Nikki Coleman will fill us in on space exploration and tourism. She's a space ethicist and Uniting Church military chaplain serving in the Royal Australian Air Force. First, let's hear from Professor Norman Wurzba from Duke Divinity School. He argues that we are soil-bound, soil-birthed, and soil-nurtured creatures. So I wanted to hear about the place where he felt most at home, most himself, and most human. Oh my, there's there's a, a number of places that I would point to. I think certainly growing up is always a powerful experience for people when they think about where they feel at home, because that's a place where you find your first source of nurture. And to me, one of the reasons why places can be so humanizing for people is that they feel that they belong. They feel that the place that they are in supports their life and doesn't just support it in some sort of meager way, but can be a source of inspiration and beauty. So the Southern Alberta landscape, a farming community that I grew up in, really communicated that to me a a great deal. I, I think another place for me is a a cottage in the woods that my wife's family has had for a a number of years. And it's where I've gone with my my own family, with our our four small children who are now adults. Uh, We've spent a lot of weeks in this uh, cottage in the mountains and to experience the woods, to experience swimming in a fresh lake, uh, is to experience that it's not just that, you know, we have a place on this earth, but that we can feel welcomed in this place and that the places in which we live can be the source of our happiness and the source of our joy. Those become deeply meaningful places for me. So the, the places that we call home often have that fear, feeling of belonging and of welcome. But mm-hmm. I think it's true that in our modern Western culture, we ha- tend to have quite an ambivalent relationship with home, especially after two years of pandemic where we have to stay home. Um, but I feel as though your work really pushes the point that a deep sense of home, of rootedness, mm-hmm. of connection, 
belonging to a place and belonging with particular people. You believe that this is central to our ability to care for the world. Yeah, and I think a great source of sadness for me is that historically, and this is pervasive across cultures, I think, human beings have done a really good job at making us feel unhomely because we we create places in which people, rather than feeling affirmed or feeling welcomed, we create the kinds of places in which their suffering and their languishing are exacerbated by infrastructure, by the, the design of of the buildings that we you know, live in, but also the buildings that we work in. And so historically, there's no doubt that we can do a whole lot to make it much more difficult for people to be at home or to feel that they don't belong or to feel that this world is not hospitable to not just human life, but the lives of all the kinds of creatures that human beings depend upon. And so that that needs to be stated because we need some way to be able to evaluate when we are doing good built environments that further the flourishing of the creatures that inhabit those places. And so I've tried in a lot of my writing to not just give a positive vision of what you know home and flourishing can look like, but we need something like that so that we can also make the judgments about when we design economies that mitigate against that. Yeah, I will ask you about those forces that are creating the unhomely life that we seem to be living. But before we move on to that, I want to ask you, people seem less likely, let's say, to believe in God this these days, right. yet you argue for the sacredness of the world and the interconnectedness right. of all life within it. Is that a difficult case to make in disenchanted times? Oh, I think it is. And, and for good reasons, I would argue. So, you know, one of the things that's important to me to do is to take seriously the arguments of people who have given up on institutional expressions of religion, because as I say, in this sacred life, the Christian tradition of which I'm a part has a pretty horrible track record, historically speaking, when it comes to, you know, the abuse of the environment, the abuse of fellow creatures, and the abuse of human beings. But I would argue that just because an institutional expression or a tradition of some religious faith, because it has a history which is beleaguered or even awful in many instances, does not mean automatically that the whole tradition should be expunged. Because what I wanted to suggest in this sacred life is that it's not just Christians or Jews or monotheistic traditions, but it's also indigenous traditions that have spoken powerfully about how the world is a created world, that the world and the life that are in it are sacred, are, are profoundly worthy of cherishing. Now, obviously, the way they talk about the sacred, the way they talk about a creator will be different. And that's perfectly fine because what's most important to me is that we have some sort of logic by which we can talk about the world as a gift. And to be able to do that, you need to have some conception of a creator. And, and so I, in the book, describe how there are ways that we can talk about the creator so that something like the affirmation of life, but also, and this is really important, that something like a protest or a prophetic impulse, which speaks against the abuse of created life, can also be put in motion. I want to ask you more about um, the First Nations perspectives and Indigenous traditions that you draw on, right. because 
they seem to be more prominent in your work than other works of theology, I guess. So I want to ask you, and I'm not quite sure if this language is okay these days, but has your theology gone native? What I wanted to do in this sacred life is write a book that was rather invitational in its tone, meaning I wanted to be able to say that it's not one tradition that has a lock on what I call the logic of creation or a lock on the logic of the sacred and that we need to, to pay attention to indigenous peoples and also pre-modern agricultural communities too because these are people who have lived very closely to the land. They're not perfect by any means, but they have understood something through their embodied engagement with land, with plants, with animals that we have lost sight of in modern societies that have become increasingly uh, urbanized, increasingly mechanized, increasingly navigated through screens, And so the divorce from any kind of embodied, fully sensorial encounter with reality has been abrogated in modern cultures. And religions can fall susceptible to that same kind of abrogation. I think we need to put indigenous traditions in conversation with other traditions like Christianity or Islam or Buddhism. Because when we put these indigenous traditions that have been very closely connected to the land we can have our own religious sensibilities in whatever tradition uh, instructed. So, yes, on the one hand, I want to affirm deeply that human beings are only ever rooted in the land, and that's happening because we eat and we drink and we breathe and we need to build homes and so forth. All of those activities root us in the land very, very intimately, and also in some terrifying ways that we could get into if you wanted to. Oh, let's go there, Norman, even if it's kind of gross. We'll get to that in a minute. This is Justine Toe for Soul Search, and we're hearing Professor Wurzba pronounce the sacredness of all life on this planet. I asked the good professor about the language of harmony. You know how we talk about how human, plant and animal life might exist together in harmony? What does he think of that? Yeah, oh, there's so many important things that you're raising in your your comments now. So on the one hand, I want to be a little bit careful about the language of of harmony because it makes it sound or appear that our living with other creatures, plant, animal, land, whatever, is friction-free or even pain-free. And I don't think that's the case, right? We can live in ways that are mutually enhancing but there's, there's going to be pain and suffering along the way because just the very nature of our entangled embodied existence means that we're going to bump into each other in ways that sometimes are nurturing, but also in ways that can sometimes produce suffering. When we, we talk about the kind of harmony that people feel or long for, I think it's important to stress how in the history of modern industrial, now global development, We have done so much to assault the world so that something like harmony almost becomes impossible, right? So if you think about Chernobyl as just one physical site that is a manifestation of impulses of modernity, how do you have a harmonious relationship or even a mutually flourishing relationship with a radioactive site? That's something that human beings have created. And, and it's a feature of having instrumentalized our places, having instrumentalized the creatures we live with, and having further instrumentalized the people 
we live with. And we do this, of course, when we treat people as units of production or units of consumption. And so some of the loss that people feel when they don't think that the world is a place of their acceptance and their belonging is people are sensing a powerful diminishment of their own value at the same time. And it sort of reaches a climax, I would say, in some of the existentialist writers who, remember, are writing in the context of World War II, which was perhaps the greatest display of not just ecocide, but domicide that the world had ever seen when we unleashed nuclear weapons, powerful explosives, fire, chemical weapons on people, communities, and creatures, right? That's a scene of, of desolation. And so to, to think that people are going to have anything like a harmonious relationship with each other and with their, with their sort of landed communities, their home environments, that's a hard sell when you're living in the context of that kind of destruction. You've talked about destruction, you've talked about instrumentalization. I feel like now we need to get to the Anthropocene because in some ways it's like you've written an account of the, the spiritual desolation perhaps facing the Anthropocene. And I want to ask you, why is that term so appropriate for your thinking? I mean, it takes the biggest, yeah. widest angle lens possible on the human species. Why right. that language? I think... I think part of the reason is that the Anthropocene is one of these terms that has caught hold in the imaginations of people who work in multiple diverse disciplines, right? So it was started by Earth system scientists around the year 2000, but it quickly got picked up by social scientists, by humanities people, and fine artists. So I don't have any particular stake in wanting to defend this or that version of the Anthropocene, but I use it as an occasion to lift up what I think are the fundamental questions that appear by people who use this term. And so, for instance, the character or the meaning of the natural world has changed dramatically in the last couple of decades because now people are beginning to see clearly that the whole concept of nature is now irrelevant. Because when you live in a world in which human power is so strong and so wide in its reach, that it no longer makes sense to talk about anything being natural. What kind of a world do we now inhabit if everywhere we look, from the atmospheric to the cellular, we see human power or ingenuity working itself out? It used to be, historically the case, in multiple philosophical and religious traditions, that nature dwarfs human ambition, it restrains human ambition, and it gives humans the instructions by which to make sense of their own lives. Well, if nature doesn't exist anymore, how do we make sense of the world? How do we make sense of ourselves? And so the Anthropocene is for me a particularly generative term because it allows us to put these very basic and abiding questions on the table. Hmm. There are some in our culture who seem to have thought the earth and its problems a little bit too hard, so let's find our future in space. And I right. think uh, you're, you're quite critical of the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezoses of the world. Right. Can I ask, are you anti-all space travel? Or does it depend on the motivations that we bring to it? I'm not opposed to all space exploration or discovery or science. I am opposed to the idea of thinking that human beings can go settle on some other planet. 
And the reason is very simple. People like Elon Musk, but also people like Stephen Hawking, who were advocating for this at, toward the end of his life, are completely oblivious to the fact that we're embodied beings that can only live in terms of the millions of year coevolution of us alongside microorganisms, plants, animals, all of which are so finely tuned that the idea that we could go to some other planet which has none of that evolutionary history and co-development, it's a fantasy that actually boggles the mind. And so you want to want to argue with people like this and say, but you have fundam fundamentally misunderstood what it means to be human, which is why in, in the chapter on transhumanism, I think the great mistake is that the people who, who argue for the kinds of enhancements that will make terraforming of other planets possible is that pe these people haven't taken seriously our own embodiment. What I argue is that the transhumanist ideal, which ends with the engineering of human beings to such a degree that they can move to another planet in outer space that has been engineered for their welcome, is an undertaking of such astronomical proportions that we're fooling ourselves. We're giving ourselves the excuse not to do the much more simple thing, which is how do we address this world, these bodies here and now, so that their lives are happier and healthier. If we did that and didn't think we had an escape hatch to some other planet, maybe we would commit the attention, the skill that we are going to need to repair this planet, to repair our communities, to make our relationships with other people and other creatures whole. I'm, uh, I'm struck by your words in This Sacred Life. You write, the Garden of Eden story means for people to look down and around rather than up and away. And that really resonates with what you've just been saying. Tell me about your reading of the Garden of Eden story and particularly the way that you characterise um, the figure of Adam as a person yeah. of soil. And you even have this right. lovely elaboration of how human life is a variation of soil. So tell right. me about soil and its critical role in, in that theological conception, but also in the makeup yeah. of our bodies. The, the Garden of Eden story is such a rich story, and, and it's been, I think, really underutilized by so many people who, who read either you know, the book of Genesis as Jews or as Christians, because the more interesting part of the story for a lot of people has been when we get to Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit and then, you know, having the first sin <laughs> and you know there's nudity and there's death and there's all that stuff that gets people really excited and soil seems utterly boring and so we bypass the that section and what i want to do is say soil is not utterly boring it's the most fascinating thing on this planet because without soil there is no terrestrial human life and what soil does is incredible because if you think about it for just a minute there's so much life that happens above ground but a lot of this life dies and it goes into the ground and we've not paid attention. This death that enters the soil becomes the basis for new life and fertility and fecundity. It's interesting that in this story, the Garden of Eden story, the term Adam comes from the Hebrew term Adama, which is the term for soil. And as I read that story, every time Adam would hear the name Adam would immediately think of Adama because we're soil bound, we're soil birthed, and we're constantly soil nurtured. And this to me is a foundational story because it puts in the mind of people 
this inescapable insight that we can't live apart from soil. And so the most important thing is to take care of the soil. And this is something that every gardener knows. It's something every farmer knows. But we, having become mostly urbanite, mostly consumers of the world's goods rather than the growers of the world's goods, are mostly ignorant and maybe even disdainful of the very soil we need to survive. And so as we think about the future of this planet and the future of feeding what may be a projected 10 or 11 billion people, the first thing we have to do is we have to figure out how to feed the soil that feeds us. And we know that through systems of regenerative or natural systems agriculture, that when we take care of the soil, we also do really important work for the cleaning of our waters, for the, the growth of nutritious and much more resilient plant and animal life. But we also do something called carbon sequestration, which is really important in a time of climate change. And I think the stuff that you're saying about soil also is very intimately linked with your ideas about people being creatures, which is interesting right. because, you know, this language of Anthropocene, it, it kind of pronounces human power and dominance. And yet for humans to think of themselves as creatures, it seems very lacking in ambition, if I might say. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really wonderful way to put it. You're right. I mean, the Anthropocene, because it elevates at least certain kinds of people, right, often white men, <laughs> European men, it elevates them above the world so that they can assume a kind of position of mastery over it. And that gives the assumption that there's a kind of exemption that we can somehow evade our biological character. And what this stuff about soil does is it helps us appreciate how intimate the entanglements are with a bewildering array of creatures, large and small. So yeah, we know about the plants and the animals that are above ground that we can see with the naked eye. But the minute you get into the soil itself, you encounter billions and billions of microorganisms that we have barely begun to understand, right? We call this the soil microbiome. It's this incredibly dense, dynamic realm in which there's a feeding frenzy that is generative of life happening all the time. Well, it's Every in our gut, right, as well? It's in our, yeah, our microbiome in the gut, which again is this amazing new discovery that scientists have brought to our attention. But what this microbiome in our guts tells us is that most of who we are in terms of genetic material isn't even us. So that when we feed on anything, we're first of all feeding the microbiome in us. Right? And if we didn't do that, so much of our basic function uh, would simply fall to pieces because we depend on creatures at the most visceral gut level for our own existence. And so the idea that each of us is a singular, self-standing, extricatable being that stands above the earth just falls apart the minute you pay attention to the human gut. When you talk about soil and Adam and hearing Adama and, and noticing those intimate connections, and that starts to picture human life as being growers and nurturers and carers, to, to talk about care and nurture as fundamental human tasks in the world is, is very beautiful, but it strikes me that it's quite a hard sell as well. Uh, oh, yeah. Women will tell you that care work just isn't valued and you've got nurses and, and allied health care industries kind of struggling after COVID right. after several years. So what will it take for us to value care and nurture? Yeah. It's a powerful point you're making, and, and I would extend it to say it, it, it's, it's not just that we don't value care, but we actively 
violate caregivers, right? This is why the histories of slavery and coercive labor are, are just so painful to bear. And I think what might bring about a shift is where we are at right now, where we're seeing how it's our abandonment and abuse of Earth has brought us to the point where we're creating a world that is literally uninhabitable. There are regions on our Earth where the temperatures are so hot, the drought conditions are so severe, that people have to actually leave their homes. And so we're seeing how our waywardness has done not just the kind of damage that affects a few isolated places, but are creating the conditions for the uninhabitability of people. Now, will this be enough inducement to get us to realize that care is the fundamental vocation? I don't know. But I think what it ought to do is it ought to inspire us to think about what kinds of economies, what kinds of political frameworks and priorities are we going to need to advocate for so that people who do the work of care are rightly rewarded, compensated, protected, honored, celebrated. And I know that this is a hard sell, but we see it happen in certain kinds of contexts, right? Think about how in certain food networks we're seeing that people who grow food in ways that care for the animals, that honor the land and its life, they're able to, to make a living because they have consumers who will support those decisions. We need to stop thinking that the only work that matters is the work that damages the world and instead call to mind to people how the work of care, care of children, care of homes and neighborhoods, how this is the most fundamental thing. You know, here I'm thinking of how powerful the example and the witness of someone like Greta Thunberg is where she says she's tired of hearing these wealthy white men in Davos, Switzerland, talk about how they have hope for the future in these technologies that they're developing when she says that these are the very same people who have stolen the future for young people because their carelessness with the world is creating a world of greatly diminished hopes and prospects for them. We need more people like that making the point that the carelessness of our dominant economies uh, cannot be sustained. That's Professor Norman Wurzba. His book is This Sacred Life, Humanity's Place in a Wounded World. You're listening to Soul Search with me, Justine Toe, on ABC RN and the ABC Listen app. We're talking about life on this planet, rooted on this earth, as well as our ambitions to go beyond it. So with our feet planted firmly on the earth, let's lift our gaze to the skies. The Reverend Dr. Nikki Coleman is an ordained minister in the Uniting Church. She serves as senior chaplain ethicist with the rank of squadron leader in the RAAF. She's also a bit of a space movie buff. So what's her favourite space film? Oh, I mean, it's very Australian, but I love The Dish. Oh. Just because <laughs> it's It's a funny. patriotic answer. <laughs> well, no, well, yes, but also it's a reminder of how much we are intrinsically linked to space now, but also how much of the work of space actually happens on the ground. So we talk about the space sector and we talk about all the people who work in space, but very few people are actually in space and the rest of us are making the magic happen on the ground. And I just loved how real it was because it's like that even today, I suspect. 
Yeah, I, I am really intrigued by what you've just suggested there, that there is this intrinsic connection with space, even though it seems as though it is out there and we are down here on the ground. Yeah. Because, you know, we think about the galaxy far, far away, for example, but are we part of one giant interdependent system? I think we probably are. And I think we are reliant upon um, not only what happens on Earth but also what happens in in the sky and, you know, in space, not only because of how we use satellites but for many other reasons as well. And I think part of it is we're intrinsically linked because we have this desire to go and explore from, you know, early explorers who sailed or, or walked across Australia or sailed to Australia through to now where we're, we're looking at going to Mars and further and beyond. You know, it's part of our intrinsic makeup as humans to want to explore our wider area. And for us now, that's space. And I think that's really exciting. Okay. So talk me through space ethics. Mm. I must admit, I know nothing. So tell me, what does it involve? So space ethics is obviously looking at the ethical issues that space raises. And so that's both on the ground, so what sort of minerals what um, do we use for creating our space assets? You know, and by um, that you mean we... rockets? Is that what you mean, as for as an example, or satellites? Oh, rockets, satellites. Yeah, so rare earth minerals that are used in cell phones, for example, or the materials that we use to create satellites, where we have our launch facilities, all of those sorts of things what sort of materials we use for our propellants for rockets that impact on Earth's environment. It's also things, for example, around how we handle our near-Earth environment, so from here to the moon, how are we looking after that for now but also for future generations. And then it's also further afield is looking at how do we have a responsibility for now and for future generations for humans and maybe potentially for other life forms that we come across. That is so huge and broad and I have (laughs) a million questions. Can I ask though, let's just take one of those things you've mentioned, the near-Earth environment, okay? You said that's from here to the moon. If we just take that bit of space for now, what sort of considerations do we need to be thinking about So a classic question that we talk about in space ethics is around low Earth orbit. So that's where a lot of our satellites go. And so um, making sure that we limit the amount of space debris we have there, Uh, because if there is a lot of space debris, it means that there is more likely to be collisions, which obviously can create a cascade effect called the Kessler syndrome, which means that then that area becomes unusable. So even though space seems vast and absolutely is, it's actually a very fragile environment because once we put stuff up there, it's very very difficult for us to clean it up, for example, if it breaks down or if it impacts on another satellite and then we have pieces of space debris going everywhere because we know that space debris can last a very, 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 very long time. Some things will degrade in orbit and burn up. But other things, as we saw recently with SpaceX, will come crashing down. Yes, in and a sheep paddock in the New South Wales snowy mountains. So, so. How, I really want to go out there and look at it. But, I mean, 
I mean, imagine if that happened over a populated area. That could have been catastrophic. Yeah. But, I mean, we also have other big pieces of space debris, for example, whole rocket bodies that are there from the 1960s, for example. And so we need to ensure that what we do is actually responsible so that we don't create another environmental disaster in, say, low Earth orbit or elsewhere, say, whether that's low Earth orbit or the moon or Mars, for example. Yes. Space seems like it's got a lot of space in it. Um, But from what I'm hearing you say, that's no good reason to just like litter, right? Or or leave our stuff up there indefinitely. If we all all take the view that, oh, well, it doesn't matter, there's a lot of area to to kind of throw stuff out there, that's great. But if we all do that, if we universalise that, if we all do that, future generations do that, at some point there will be too much. It's the similar kind of situation with the great garbage patch in the Pacific. Mm. You know, everybody threw their garbage into the Pacific and now it's actually a huge problem. If people hadn't done that, then we wouldn't have, be having to clean it up. So it's better to prevent rather than having to clean up. Mm. Yeah, so it sounds as though this is a space conservation conversation basically and it does have impacts as you've already said because all the rare earth minerals used to go towards all your space assets like they're limited as well right they're not an infinite sink of resources to be drawn on so it's about sustainability as well as much as anything else well and also not only sustainability but are you ensuring that you're looking after the people that are getting those minerals for you or are you um, using and abusing, say, um, a country that isn't necessarily going to reap the benefits of those space assets? The great thing about what they did early on when they were setting up a lot of our laws and treaties around space is that they decided that space belongs to all humankind and that's now and future generations. And so it's making sure that we all reap the benefits. But it also means we we share the risks as well, whether it's rare earth minerals or, um, you know, other problems as well. Tell me, if we need to be really conscious about drawing minerals from the earth, is it possible to, to draw material from space? There is actually a lot of work being done on this, particularly around asteroid mining. Um, There's work being done on um, potentially mining parts of the moon and so on. The problem... I don't know how I feel about that, I have to admit. I know, I know. Well, see, the problem is who owns that. Legally, at the moment, it's owned by everybody. And so we're in a really awkward situation where the laws haven't caught up because the laws were written when we had a few big space countries and that was very controlled by their governments. But now we're having a lot of private organisations, people like um, SpaceX, for example, you know, corporations who are pushing the boundaries of the law and are wanting to, you know, do things like asteroid mining and mine the moon and so on. And so we really need law to catch up. And a part of that is looking at, well, what is the ethics around that? What do we as a society want the law to be? And um, how can we best frame that for now and for future generations to keep it, you know, sustainable, but also to encourage these great opportunities that potentially doing things in space brings about. Yeah, and I I read that the Australian Space Agency, the first kind of space agency that Australia's ever had, uh, opened its doors in 2020. Is that part of its role, to kind of try to work out how to advocate for Australian interests, but also to be part of that global community trying to 
to preserve space, I suppose, or to, to kind of make it sustainable? So there are a couple of pillars within the space agency. Um, I don't work there, so I'm just talking about what um, you know how how I love the things that they do. And one is encouraging education, so we understand space. Another is responsible users of space, but another is actually driving innovation so that we grow the space sector in Australia because we're really interestingly positioned as far as technology goes but also geopolitically in the world to be able to do a whole heap of really interesting sort of stuff in that area. So the space agency has to sort of balance industry but also the environment which is an interesting path for them to tread I'm sure. Well tell me what does environmentalism look like in space? Is that a word that even works in that context? Um, I haven't heard it used much, but we talk about responsible uses of space and sustainable uses of space. One of the great things about Australia is that we have a long history of space. Our Indigenous um, brothers and sisters actually were the first astronomers. So for 60,000 years, they've actually been walking by the stars and navigating by the stars and also using it for crops and so on, for, for hunting and so on. They have had a really intimate connection to the land, but also to space. And so I think one of the great things about Australia astronomy and Indigenous astronomy at the moment is we're looking not only to, well, what are the star patterns and so on, but how can we care for country in a way that is earth, but also sky and space. And I think that's actually really exciting because it shows that we are intrinsically a part of all of that system. We're not separate from it. And if we stuff up the ground, we cause environmental problems here. But the same thing happens actually in space. If we cause problems in space, we are intrinsically linked to that because of the way we use space, especially now. And so we have a responsibility to care for country and care for space as a part of that. This is Justine Toe with you for Soul Search on ABC RN and your ABC Listen app. In 2021, three tourists hopped into a spaceship, the SpaceX capsule, and took a joyride, spending three days in orbit. Nikki's just been talking about the need to care for space. How does the growing field of space tourism change the game? Space tourism um, obviously will have a, f- a big future going forward, but at the moment it's the province of only those that can afford it and you have to be uber rich to be able to afford it at the moment. But I think we're looking in the next five or ten years where the cost of that will come down. We're seeing that in all other areas of the space industry. And so we need to be thoughtful about how we actually move forward and allow people to go into space, but also the impacts that that might have on them. Yeah, what do you mean by that? What kind of uh, impacts? Well, well, a wide ranging of impacts. So we know that travelling to space is inherently dangerous. You're basically strapping yourself to an explosion. (laughs) When you put it like that, yep. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so whilst it is much safer than it used to be, they still have accidents and, and, I mean, it's not as safe as, for example, being in your car. Now, maybe that might change but probably not 
dramatically. And so how can we assist our space tourists to make sure that they're making a good informed decision to go into space? But also there are impacts on the body in space from microgravity environments affecting your bones and your muscles. Now, obviously, that's less because they're not going to be in space for a long time, Mm. but they're also exposed to higher doses of cosmic radiation. And so it's about being careful and making it safe, but also making it as accessible as possible to as many people whilst also looking after the environment. So there's a lot of balancing factors in there. Are there also environmental impacts of rocket launches? What I mean by that is like, I suppose we can justify that on the basis of exploration, right? But when, if it's about a joyride, let's say, <laughs> space tourism, not that that, you know, obviously I would love to go to space if I could, but would there be an environmental impact from lots of commercial space flights? Absolutely. Look, if we have lots of commercial space flights, we have more rocket bodies that are in low Earth orbit that we need to deal with. We have more rocket propellant that's being, you know, spewed out as it's going. The risk of that, we have to weigh that against what is the good coming out of that. Now, when we're looking at the current space exploration, so it's around exploration, but there's a lot of science and experimentation that happens in space at the moment versus, well, now I have a selfie of me looking back at Earth. And so we need to kind of weigh that against each other. My number one guiding factor is just because we can do something doesn't mean we should be doing something. And my only concern with space tourism is that it might it may get out of control really, really fast. And particularly because we aren't really at the moment looking at a lot of controls around how we're dealing with body, um, you know, space debris. And so we need to, if we're going to have an increase of number of people going into space, then we also need to have an increase on um, protections for the space environment to ensure that it's usable for future generations for things like um, satellites for navigation and so on, and that it's not just all used and ruined by a couple of people taking selfies or a couple of thousand people taking selfies. So we just need to balance that out. There's also the case that Elon Musk, for example, has ambitions to settle Mars, right? So it's not simply just space tourism that can change the game. It's like colonisation, Talk me through. I wait. I feel like we have a post-colonial critique that's quite strong, um, but that's just yeah. concerning terrestrial, right? Colonization. What about extraterrestrial colonization? This is an ethical nightmare, surely. It, it is. It's not an area I work in a lot, but anyway, my concern is for the individuals that might be going to Mars because currently we have the technology to get them there, but they would die a really nasty, slow death because of the amount of radiation they'd be exposed to. The number one limiting factor at the moment is our bodies. And so I think we're a little way off how to work out how to send people to colonise Mars simply because of that. But that gives us a great opportunity because it means we can work out what kind of society do we want living in a colony on Mars? You know, do we want it to just be for the richest people? Do we want to send artists and and scientists? You know, do we want a broad cross-section of people? I think there's an opportunity because there's a delay because the technology around getting people there and, and doing it safely hasn't happened yet. I think there's a great opportunity to actually think about more thoughtfully about what we do. And I'm not seeing a lot of that 
done internationally, little pockets of that, which is really great, but we can learn from how we colonised countries on Earth. How about we learn from those mistakes and do it better um, in places like Mars? You mentioned that currently the human body can't take the cosmic amounts of radiation. Mm -hmm. Do you think then that, like, what are your thoughts around human life and it being attached or Indigenous even to this planet? Are we grounded beings and grounded on this earth? I think we're wandering souls. As humans, we seek for new lands. We we climb Mount Everest. We want to go and explore. And I think space is, it is the next frontier for that. And whilst we may have an emotional connection back to our planet, I think it's highly likely that when the technology arrives, we will have people who are going and exploring wider places. I don't think we are necessarily bound to the earth. I think as people we're social beings and so we're bound to people and we are also bound to where we're from. But if we have people who are growing up on Mars, they're bound to those people who are theirs rather than necessarily back to earth. I I do understand the argument, but I think that as time goes on, we are going to have more and more people going to far places as we have in the past where people, you know, got on boats and, and came to Australia, you know, 200 plus years ago and other people who come to Australia now trying to come here even though they don't know what it's going to be like. And I think space is the next step of that. So uh, I think we just, as humans, we make the best of where we're at. Now, Nikki, earlier I was talking to Norman Wurzbar and he was suggesting that human life is intimately connected with this planet. So he he does a read of the creation story. He suggests that when God makes Adam, uh, Adam has this linguistic connection to Adama, the the earth, the Hebrew the Hebrew word for the earth. But then he yeah. also reflects on how humans breathe in microbes from the soil. And that actually winds up sustaining the bacterial life that's inside us as well. Yeah, so we're all connected, yeah. Yeah, so he's positing this really deep connection between human life and this planet, let's say. So the creation story that we have in Genesis and in particular with Adam was people trying to understand how they related to the earth and how they related to the bigger being that is God and how that explain to them the sky, the earth, the seasons, the animals, and how we fitted into that. And I don't see why it would be different to someone on, say, Mars, potentially, you know, in a thousand years' time, that evolving and them finding their own narrative around how they relate to the ground that they're on, the sky, the earth further away, and how they relate to God. Whilst we are currently intrinsically symbiotic effectively with the earth, I think we are the kind of creatures who actually change and adapt to whatever our environment is and then have an intrinsic connection with wherever we are. And so it may be that they phrase that in a different way, but that doesn't mean that it's less real for them than it is for us. And what about the potential discovery of alien life? right? Like how does that also throw up some implications for faith as well? Um, So 
we are very, as humans, for a long time, we were very Earth-centric and I think we thought we were the centre of the universe and we now know from science that's not the case. I don't see why God can't be God for us but also God for other alien life and maybe in different ways of understanding. So I'm a chaplain in the Air Force, I'm a Uniting Church minister, but I work multi-faith and I recognise that there are many different ways of understanding God, not just my own understanding from the Uniting Church. And, you know, how is that different from, say, an alien from, you know, far, far away understanding their place in their universe and their relationship to God might come in a different format. And I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily bound to the earth. I think we make meaning where we are. Nikki, you're a military chaplain serving people of all faiths and none. So tell me about people's reactions to the James Webb telescope images. Yeah. When people see them, is everyone having a spiritual moment, regardless of what they believe? They are utterly gorgeous. I, I, they are the purest form of art in lots of ways. I'm amazed at the images that we're getting back and it just gives me a sense of wonder and awe and desire to see, you know, what we as humans can do going forward and going and exploring. I'd love to go to space. It's never going to happen because I'm not rich enough and I'm too old. (laughs) Um, But I would say that we all have similar experiences and but we use different languages around our reaction to the James Webb telescope photos. So for some people it will be described as a spiritual experience For some people, they'll say they have wonder and awe. It's a similar experience. It's just using different language to describe a similar sort of joint experience that we're all having. Well, tell me, when you see those images, what sparks for you? Uh, Does the vastness and that beauty you spoke of, does it make you see your faith in a different way or does it help confirm what you already believe? I think from my faith perspective, the photos from the James Webb telescope just reinforce for me just how massive the universe is and how tiny my understanding is of it. And from a faith perspective, it makes me realise that things are much bigger than I understand. I find them really, those photos, mind-blowing. But it's uh, also recognising that I am very loved in where I am and um, part of the thing for me for that is community but also a relationship to God. So I find it reinforcing but also at the same time (laughs) mind-blowing. I think you're not alone. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Now we've talked about the ethical challenges posed by space, space as for everyone, not just kind of like the people who can send their satellites up there and so Mm -hmm. on. Does, it, does all of this make you even more conscious of this planet and trying to, to care about this place? And I, I guess I'm asking, are your feet on the ground, right, even yes. if your imagination and your head is in the skies? I'm this sort of person that needs to get out into the bush fairly regularly and or have my feet in the, um, the river or the ocean or just in the dirt. I find that I need that grounding fairly regularly. But I'm also the kind of person that needs to go and sit and look at the night sky as well. And I find all of that very healing from, you know, the the troubles of life. And so, yes, I think space ethics reminds me that we need to do better on Earth 
but we especially need to learn our mistakes from climate change, for example, and make sure we don't create climate change 2.0 in our space, the way we handle space debris. And one final question. In space, here I want to instantly say no one can hear you scream from the alien <laughs> movies, uh, but, but space is quite a lonely place, I suppose. And, you know, you've just mentioned how seeing the James Webb telescope images makes you feel tiny and that, and how much you don't know. Uh, but what about the role of community then? We need each other. We, we want each other. Mm. We can't replicate that in the same way in space. Any thoughts to oh, offer? Oh, I disagree. Oh, oh really? No, no, I oh, I love that. Yes, absolutely. Because one person can't get themselves to space. Thousands of people have to work to get that one person into space. And when we have that one person in space, most of the time we don't send them up on their own. We actually need each other even more in space. So we need to work together. We need not only physically to make getting up there and working in space and making it safe in space, but also psychologically we know that it's important to have groups of people in space and not have individuals on their own. And so I actually think, yes, space could be lonely, but not for long. It would be a short, brief moment (laughs) if you were lonely in space. And I think the one thing about space is that we all need to come together, whether it's on the ground or in space to make, um, you know, things work up there. It, It brings us together more than anything else. Even if space is out there, it's got something to do with all of us. Minus one minute in five, four, three, two, three, I'm Justine Toe. Thanks for joining me for Soul Search. And big thanks to Rowan Salmond and Nadiet El Ghali for producing, and Russell Stapleton for sound engineering. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. Now it's my last week at Soul Search. Next week you'll hear a familiar voice, the one and only Meredith Lake, fresh from what I hope has been a really good break. Welcome back to the program, Meredith. It's been an absolute delight to keep your seat warm for you. I've had great fun. Happy to step in as host anytime. Don't forget to tune in to Soul Search next week on ABC RN and via the ABC Listen app. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.